You are listening to an American Theater podcast. American Theater is a publication of Theater Communications Group. www.americantheater.org. American Theater's podcasts are kindly supported by theater acoustics and digital design consultancy Charcoal Blue. I'm Deep Trance, senior editor of American Theater Magazine. I'm Jose Solis, freelance theater critic, and we're your token theater friends—people who love theater so much that we'll spend an entire day talking about the Tony nominations. Or I guess we're talking about it today as well. So two days talking about the Tony nominations because it's that time of year again where we give out statues. Are you excited, Jose? It's like the holidays for me. <laughs> Because in case you all didn't know, Jose is a Drama Desk nominator, so he helped to decide who gets shiny statues this year. And let me brag for a second: isn't our selection of best plays much better than what the Tonys came up with? So much better. Go Drama Desk. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we'll talk more about awards and who should get them at the end of the show. We'll see about that. Yeah, but first up, we have to talk about things that we've seen recently. What have we seen, Jose? Today we are talking about three shows, all of them off Broadway. We're going to be talking about Mrs. Murray's Menagerie at Ars Nova, The Pain of My Belligerence at Playwrights Horizons, and The Cradle Will Rock at Classic Stage Company. And for today's interview, we are talking to director Tatiana Malarino, whose play Seventeen Border Crossing is currently running at New York Theater Workshop. But first, let's talk about The Cradle Will Rock. And we are talking about The Cradle Will Rock on May Day, which is wonderful because it's a play about unions and labor and workers' rights. And one of the things that's always Baffled me about May Day is that uh, it's International Labor Day. We celebrate Labor Day all over the world, except America. And May Day actually is commemorated because of there was a massacre in Chicago in 1886, and it started as like a peaceful rally where workers got together, and they ended up getting killed by the cops. I think. There were bombs, and there was, you know, like tons of workers died. So that's what we, why we celebrate Labor Day today. Bring you the facts on Token Theater, friends. <laughs> so anyway, The Cradle Will Rock is a play from 1937 by Mark Blitzstein, and it's a play that、uh, it was originally done with music. It's not necessarily a musical per se, and the play essentially does like a snapshot of. Many people in a place called Steeltown, USA, and how many people in different fields are realizing that the rights of workers are not being respected, and they essentially have no rights. So we meet like a sex worker, we meet、uh, artists, we meet like a newspaper editor, we meet people who work in factories. By the end of the play, they all have come to understand that. Employees and workers need to have rights, and they need to, you know, stand their ground and and unionize. Yes, and the cradle will rock until the rights their rights are are respected. Also, something else that I just realized is that because it's May Day and it's Labor Day all over the world, that's the reason why Alexandria Ocasio Cortez's documentary、mm. um, knocked the. Knock down the house is premiering today on Netflix, so check that out if you can, because we love AOC, right? Yes, we do love AOC. If only I lived two blocks over, she would be representing me. Wow, you can move, <laughs> move for AOC. <laughs> I know, right? Anyway, the production we're reviewing of Cradle of Rock is a classic stage company, and it's directed by their artistic director John Doyle, which means there's lots of people、uh, playing different, multiple characters. Tony Yasbeck is in it, and there's music, and the staging is kind of confusing because John Doyle. 
the staging is confusing because John Doyle, if you've never seen his show, they're very minimalist. There's really, there's only usually one set piece and very minimal costumes to denote that these people are playing different characters. And so the problem with the Cradle Will Rock is how many characters are there? Too many. Too many characters. There's like at least 10 characters. So they're playing characters who, who like have their own song to sing. And they, they're also playing disenfranchised union, union workers, which are separate from the characters that are actually singing. So what John Doyle did was dress everyone up as union workers, but when they're playing like members of the bourgeois or when they're playing like a newspaper person or a prostitute, like you can't tell w- that they've changed characters. <laughs> And the and the work goes forward and backwards in time, and because there's no staging or any lighting to denote change of time, this is my second time seeing the show, and I still don't know what is what is happening or who is talking. Wait, you went to this production twice? No, I saw a production of it like years ago, like three, four years ago, because City Center did it, and Raul Esparza played Tony Yazbek's role. Oh, that makes sense. And it was also double cast? It was also double cast, and it was also no set. Hmm. No set and no very little scenic transitions and costume changes. So kind of the same thing, but I still don't know what's happening. And that's such a choice. It's such a choice. Yeah, because especially when the content of the play is the importance of labor's Giving people, giving actors multiple roles is basically saying do the work of two or three people. Yeah. Which is like the opposite of what the play is about. And that's, I mean, I know that theater is expensive to produce, but when it comes to a show that has a socialist message like this one does, it, it says a lot that, you know, that artistic directors would rather bow down to capitalism and be like, we need to save money and make actors do three characters. Yeah, and it was first produced by the Federal Theater Project, which was a New Deal program put in place by, you know, Franklin D. Roosevelt. So back then, anyone could afford to go see this play and take home the message of the importance of people, the common people rising up against corruption from the very wealthy. And I feel like presenting this piece in a theater where the tickets are $82 is kind of undercutting the socialist message of the piece, which is about the importance of listening to the voice of the everyman, maybe. Read the room. Yes. Or make the room more diverse. But what I, the thing I did enjoy about about the piece though were the actors and because and this is like a problem with the piece itself which is everyone's a trope Mm -hmm. it's not about actual people it's about like the villain is called mr mister who's like the head of the town and is basically like funneling money towards everybody in order to further his own anti-union interest and the problem is there's so many people that no one really gets character development. And so everyone just gets like one really good song to like to tell you who they are. And so what the actors are supposed to do is like they're supposed to give these characters some kind of pathos so that you understand them, even if you only meet them for five minutes. The highlight for me was actually Vima Webb, yes. who sang Joe Worker Got Gypped about regular people who get fucked over. And I feel like she was the only one who brought a sense of who I actually felt the, she was the only one who I actually felt anger from. Mm-hmm. Cause the entire thing just felt just so cold. So everyone, muted. Everyone just going through the motions of being a disenfranchised worker. And I felt that, that, uh, that Rima actually felt most real to me. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. Like she brought, down the house mm-hmm. and i wonder you know for for an actor who stands out like she does because i love tony yasbeck and i one of the reasons why i wanted to go see this show was tony yasbeck because he's one of our greatest leading, stage performers yeah, leading he's, men he's incredible and very good looking and tall also yeah <laughs> and he's a great singer but i wonder you know like when you're in a cast when you're in the ensemble for cradle will rock which has a socialist message i wonder how much of that 
you know, don't be an individual gets in the brain uh, brains of the actors. And maybe when the play debuted in 1937, that might have been a little bit more Brechtian. But I feel that by now, we needed the anger that Rima mm-hmm. Webb gave us. We needed more of that. Yeah. So were you disappointed in Tony? I had trouble differentiating. I had trouble realizing that he was playing different two different dudes. Same. I mean, I wasn't disappointed in him. I was disappointed in the production, the entire production, basically, because it didn't seem to have an angle. It was just, mm-hmm. let's do this because we should. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there's, uh, I wonder if there's ever been like a really great production of Cradle Will Rock because famously it closed like 40 performances after it opened on Broadway. And there's a movie uh, version of, not of the play itself, but of the making of the play that Tim Robbins directed in 1999. Mm-hmm. Have mm-hmm. you ever seen it? No, no. It's really wonderful. It's not like a great movie either, but it has like, oh my God, like some of the people who were involved historically, who were involved in the making of Cradle Rock in 1937 were like Deo Rivera, Frida Kahlo. It was the very first play that Orson Welles's theater company put on. So it was all this, like some of the greatest minds of the 20th century were involved in this. And the, the movie coming together, make theater. Like my mind is blown. Isn't that so cool? Like, I, I, I don't know. Like I, I would, I would love to get a time machine and like go back in time. Cause and see Orson Welles direct it. Cause he knows anger. He, he, he definitely knew anger. But I think, I think what you're saying about it, not, this production, not having a point of view, like I get the rationale for mounting it because it is about corruption and we're living in a, in a time full of corruption from people like the president and from also corporations taking advantage of working people. And so I understand wanting to do it. I don't understand doing it in this way where you had there, where there's just no blood in it. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if another director, like someone who is who's from a disenfranchised background, can put can put some of that in there, or have just like some kind of concept that goes beyond. Let's put people in overalls and throw money at them. Mm-hmm. Completely, yeah. But uh, I mean, if if the play has such an important message, and what you're hearing the subscribers say as they leave the theater is that was so boring. Mm-hmm. You're doing a disservice to the play. Mm-hmm. I would love to see AOC direct <laughs> Cradle Will Rock. Yeah. And if someone like Ivo Van Hove, for instance, had any sense of, you know, of the importance of labor unions, he would grab non-professional actors, like maybe disenfranchised people, like in some cases, the very same people that all these publications keep calling, you know, the real America. Mm-hmm. And can you imagine like a production of this with non-professional actors who are angry, so they feel the pain that these characters feel? And maybe, um, yeah, maybe I'm just dreaming too too big right now. I know. Or maybe we should direct a production. Shit. We yeah. have opinions about labor unions. I know. But if I directed a production of anything, I would try to get Kelly O'Hara and Audra McDonald and like Stephanie J. Block. And it, yeah, it would not, it would defeat the purpose. So. If you are a fan of The Cradle Will Rock by Mark Blitzstein, then this production is playing at Classic Stage Company until May 19th. And tickets are 82 to $127. Let us know what you think if you've seen it. Did you know what was happening? And if you want to save some money, Classic Stage Company does have this wonderful program. Just sign up to their newsletter and they have something called Access Tickets. And every week they sell a lot of tickets for $25. So get on that. Yeah, so may, maybe regular people are coming to see it. Hopefully. Mm-hmm. Hopefully. If you're a regular person who's seen this musical, let us know. So this, the next play we'll be talking about is The Pain of My Belligerence by Haley Pfeiffer, and it's currently playing at Playwrights Horizons. In it, a young journalist has an affair with an older restaurateur and the play follows their relationship from the Obama years to the Trump years and how it develops in the light of, 
developments in heterosexual male female gender conversations in those eight years. Okay, so this is one of those plays where I came in expecting to like it because it touches all of my, the topics touch all of my feminist buttons, which is like the way men and women are socialized to interact with each other and, and socialized to like uphold gender roles and how we disrupt that in the age of equality. And I wish I liked it more than I did. And I think the main problem for me with the... Okay, um, I feel like I should talk about what I like first. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I really like the dialogue. I think Kaylee has like a really good ear for writing realistic dialogue because that first scene between... uh, She also stars in the play. And she stars opposite Hamish Linklater, uh, who, if you don't know, was in... What was he in? A lot of Shakespeare in the Park shows. <laughs> A lot of them. Yeah, and who's also in Legion and Newsroom. And he is very good looking. And the first scene is their first date. And he keeps on... I could feel myself cringing in my seat, but I knew, knew that... Haley wanted me to because it's basically if you ever want an example of men interrupting women when they talk and and also women trying to like appease men's male egos by you know laughing at their shitty jokes that was that first scene and I I know what she was trying to do which is she is trying to show like how women fall for men who are bad for them and in this play, she falls for him because, like, she goes through some health issues. And so, intellectually, I understand that, but emotionally, I did not believe it. And I didn't believe that this very intelligent woman who writes for the fucking New Yorker would be okay with having an affair and would be okay and would be so beside by this very self-important douchebag that she would forego her own health. I did not believe that. And the thing is, you believing that is the crux for the entire thing. Uh, what did you think? I like the set. <laughs> but I, and I, uh, let me ask you a question mm-hmm. that I really have no answer to. Do you feel that, you know, you're a young woman mm-hmm. and you're in New York of a certain age, a professional woman, and in the audience that I that I sat, sat for that play, it was mostly people our age. They were young professionals who probably, I'm assuming, are liberal, right? Mm-hmm. Do you think that the women and the men sitting at Playwrights Horizons don't know that this is how men treat women? I think they know, because I think that audience is educated enough to have been part of these conversations about, oh, men should not interrupt women. So, yes. Right. So, yeah, that's what I thought also, but I just wanted to double check, because that was my main problem with this. Watching that first scene was torture. It was worse to me than sitting through any of the Saw movies. So my problem with the first scene and the rest of the play is that it turned into one of those, you know, pieces of art where the depiction becomes an endorsement. Yes. And the longer it kept going, you know, in the second act, she recurs to a lot of nudity, which, again, we don't need to see a, a woman naked on stage for the sake of of proving a point of how horrible men are. Because if you mm-hmm. remember, she gets like completely naked. Yeah, and he's still fully clothed. Yes. And I was like, why are you writing this? Like, why are you, why are you doing this to yourself and to us? Who is this play for? And then what really like put like the like the poisonous cherry on top of like the arsenic sundae for me was that last scene where we Oh my yeah, god where she introduces and this is not a spoiler like you'll see, you'll read about this in every review of the play where she introduces the only person of color in the play 
And in the third act, which takes place in the 2020 election night, where we don't know who the candidate running for the Democrats is, for obvious reasons, because no one knows. In that scene, she brings in a woman of color and she gives her, she puts on her all the burden of the white problems they have created for themselves. She expects the women of color to fix everything. And I found that... she remains the victim. Yes. That's the problem. She never learns. Never. So who do you think this play is for? It was not for us. It's for white women. But don't they know that? I mean... I don't know. And the thing is, I think I think Haley knows that. I think Haley knows that white patriarchy is a problem. But she what she doesn't know is like her complicity in that problem. The thing is like I, I think that there's some awareness that there is complicity, but there wasn't enough interrogation of how or enough resolution of it. And the thing is like by putting by making the Asian woman part of the problem, it takes it takes away her own like the white feminist complicity in it right she uses like intersectionality as a weapon i guess to to just comfort herself Mm -hmm. she's like oh i can fuck up and then the people of color are gonna come and save me yeah or i can fuck up but people of color fuck up too and i can just leave the room if i fuck up I'm, I'm, i'm like bitch no you have to contribute to this problem you fucking stay in the room I'm laughing and nodding right now. <laughs> yes. And I think like not having not having the male character be held accountable for his actions really weakens it. And I don't understand the decision to not have that. Because like it's not just a woman problem. It's like how we interact with each other. And the thing is like men are not going to become better because like women spoke speak up. Men will be better they have to actively choose to like be equal partners to women instead of like talking over women. So I don't really understand what the fuck. Why? Why? Why we were watching this? Uh, I know. At least it was short. At least it was short. At least it was not burn this, which was two and a half hours of the same bullshit. Oh God, yes. And I saw those back to back. I wanted to die that week. <laughs> Did you see them back to back? And you're and you're like, man, I'm so glad I'm not heterosexual. Yes, I ran into I ran into I ran into one of my favorite critics, who's a, a, a woman, who's one of my favorite theater critics. And after the show, I went up to her and I was like, "Is this what straight dating's like?" <laughs> and she just laughed and she was like, "Yeah." <sighs> anyway, um, if you liked the play, let us know. Uh, the Plane of My Belligerence by Haley Pfeiffer is playing at Playwrights Horizons until May 12th, and tickets are 49 to $89. And the last show we're talking about, I hope we're ending on a positive note on this. I'm just saying. That's what I was going to say. It's going to be a, on a much lighter note. Mrs. Murray's Menagerie is a play that's created by the Mad Ones. And if you've been listening to our podcast forever, which we hope you have, you'll remember that last year we loved another of their shows called Miles for Mary. And Mrs. Murray's Menagerie, in a way, is a continuation of this study they're doing, this series they're doing on what happens when people from very different backgrounds are thrown together in rooms that they can't leave. And in Miles for Mary, they were it was a group of uh, high school employees who were putting together a telethon. And in Mrs. Murray's Menagerie, which is set in the 1970s, we meet a group of parents who get together because they're part of a focus group um, meant for like a Sesame Street style. Like, mm-hmm. uh, what's that dude? Uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood type. Yeah, like, like yeah. children's show. Yeah. And they get put together and asked questions about the show and what the characters mean to them. And because it's people together for a very long time, things that have nothing to do with the study end up <laughs> happening. And, you know, it's a play where one of those wonderful plays where nothing happens, but everything does. Mm-hmm. And it's an ensemble piece. And I just loved Mrs. Murray's Menagerie. Jose, try saying Miles from Mary, Mrs. Murray's Menagerie, the mad ones like. Three times fast. I already gave up. (laughs) 
Can we talk about how incredible the set design oh for this play is? Oh, my God. Okay. Yushin Chen and Laura Jelinek create the set. And if you don't know Laura Jelinek's work, she's really good at like hyper-realistic sets because she did What the Constitution Means to Me on Broadway. And she got her very first Tony nomination for Oklahoma. Woo! Oh, she has to do Oklahoma, too? Yeah. Shit! She's done so much. Good for her! And she's doing all the good work. She's doing so, all the good work. Yeah. So, come oh design, my God, Come set. to sign our set, Laura. Yeah. For, like, when we get bigger budget. And, you <laughs> know, I mean, there's a set, like, the design in general, like, the lighting. The lighting by Mike Inwood, because there's, like, these gorgeous open windows. And it was, like, this natural light coming in. But you know it's not natural light. It's fake natural light. But it looks so realistic. And yet, and still had that little grayscale of what happens when you're in a conference room for way too long. Yes. Oh, my goodness. But, yeah, like, I, I, I'm having trouble talking about like who i loved most performance wise because they're all just so because the thing is the it's about a set of parents but these are parents of like different races and their kids have and different parenting styles and like and if you ever wanted to like this is basically mrs murray's menagerie but it's also mrs murray's microaggression menagerie (laughs) menagerie of microaggressions (laughs) Did you? There's this moment that's so interesting, where like one, like the Asian, where they're talking about like how you punish your kid when they uh, did something wrong, and the Asian mom basically says, "says Oh, well, we we force them to apologize," and the white dad was like, "Oh, well, if she knew it was it, what she did was wrong, isn't that enough? And is isn't it okay for me to give her a reward?" And and like all, I know, it's like all the parents of color in the room were like, "What are you talking about?" And like, did you? see that coded as like how white people parent their kids versus how people of color parent their kids yeah what i thought was that white dad his daughter grew up to be the character in the pain of my belligerence (laughs) right (laughs) oh my god we're so sorry that we don't like your play Haley. (laughs) but no right that's the kind of People, mm-hmm. those people grow up to be people who yeah. just like burn the world and never apologize because why the hell would they? Yeah. Or like, that's how you make Trump kids. Ugh. Exactly. Ugh. But that's like the genius thing about this. It's like in this tiny one set room, like you learn so much about these people, how these people parent it and like, and, and their socioeconomic backgrounds and like their racial backgrounds. And they don't eat, ever talk about it. It's just in the in the casing of what do you think about this children's show? And so I and I just really love like what the Mad Ones are really good at doing, which is like cap- capturing like just the natural like the little nat- the little ticks that regular people have, and like putting a magnifying glass on it so you so you as the audience can see it and you realize oh i've done that or i've made that snide little comment which i thought was just a little in joke but no no people the other people actually heard it fingers crossed they see that Mm -hmm. right yeah because i'm sure some of the jokes just just fly past people's heads because they're so subtle like they don't Mm -hmm. they never like pause for laughter or anything it it feels like seeing like real people and it sounds like a cliche but one of the things that i love about both mrs murray's menagerie and miles for mary i cannot wait to see what the third m show will be Mm -hmm. like like i don't know like mr not mr i don't want misters I don't know. Like, we don't want any yeah, they're better at making like up a stuff. magic show or yeah. something. Ooh. <laughs> anyway, uh, Madonna's Moulin Rouge. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I give up. But what I love about about it so much is that every time I go see one of their shows, when I leave the theater, I'm just like suddenly aware that I'm in 2019 again because for the past two hours I have been in like the 1970s mm-hmm. and I haven't thought once about the present. And that's like fucking magic. It's like a time machine. Mm-hmm. Ooh, like Miss Mirtha's time machine. I don't know. I'll stop. I'll stop. I'll stop. M- Mr. Mayin's time machine. <laughs> no, because we don't want misters. <laughs> and I love talking to white people about the ending. And we won't mm. spoil the ending. And there's really nothing to spoil because I don't even know how to set it up. Yeah, but something yeah. happens at the end. It's so basic, but yeah. at the same time, there's so much. And it means... 
so something so different for white people than it meant. Really? Me. What did, yeah. Okay. What did it mean to them? It what meant to them that the guy didn't care about community. The ones that I've talked. Wait, about, the guy, the 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 black dad yeah. played by Philip James Brannon. Yeah, because remember, Who, yeah, he. Who's amazing, by yeah. the way. See everything so, he's in. Yeah. What happens is that basically he. They're all given a survey, and anyone who's been to a focus group know that they make you like fill up all these crazy surveys. Mm-hmm. And he fills up a survey, and everyone else just gives it back v- to, very quickly. Yeah. yeah. And then he takes a very long time filling it up, and then when he's done with it, he looks around and he sees there's no one there, and he just tosses it in the garbage. Mm-hmm. And the white people that I've talked to are like, oh, he's just being selfish. He doesn't want people to know what he thinks. What? And yeah. Or he doesn't care that he's disrupting the system and he doesn't what? care that they're gonna be Yeah. And I mean, what it I think you saw what I saw. Yeah, I think we saw the same thing. Yeah, yeah. which is this man knows his opinion doesn't matter because yeah. white people are in control. Yeah. And the thing is and and they were already setting up for the next session while he was still there. And so I saw him as him feeling invisible, like he was being rushed out, like you're being rushed out quickly at a restaurant. Like, oh, they don't really care about the fact that you were there. How did white people see something else? I have no idea. Can you imagine someone, someone thinking that this play is about how this man is messing up the point system and the surveys and oh all my that. god do you think some of those white people relate to the white dad and, and and were like oh well my kid shouldn't have to apologize and how could they not oh my god and yeah so thank you the mad ones for making us think and talk about stuff like this yeah and, and realizing keep- how certain people raise their kids please keep making plays please keep making plays uh and what we also love about the mad ones is like their shows are so affordable mrs murray's menagerie is currently running until may 11th at ars nova's new barrel street theater congratulations ars nova and tickets are 47 general admission but if you're under 30 you get 30 dollar tickets so run to see it if you grew up watching a lot of kid shows and are thinking of becoming parents (laughs) Which, I'm I'm, I'm not going to judge, but okay. Next up, we are going to listen to the interview we did with Tatiana Malarino, the director of 17 Border Crossings. Tatiana is from Colombia, and she talked to us about what the difference is between making theater in Colombia and making theater in the United States, and why she thinks that America is too politically correct. So let's take a listen. Ooh, fighting words. And now, a word from our sponsor. What makes the perfect performance venue? Comfortable seats, great views of the stage, a line for the toilet that doesn't take you out onto the sidewalk. I've encountered that way too many times, and that is why I no longer drink before shows. But in truth, every venue is unique, from a college studio space to a Broadway house, from a presentation space to an arena. Undertaking their design or renovation can be a challenge. But Charcoal Blue, that's all they do. Charcoal Blue are the leading theater, acoustic, and digital design consultancy that have designed, renovated, tweaked, and polished more than 200 performance and presentation spaces, both here and abroad, over the past 15 years. From a six-person mobile podcasting studio to the new Performing Arts Center at the World's Trade Center, their team of experienced musical and theater professionals innovate at any scale and any budget. Huh, I wonder if I can get them to design a studio for Token Theater Friends. With studios in New York, Chicago, the UK, and Australia, speak to them today about how they can help you realize your ambitions for your space. Visit them at charcoalblue.com or follow them at Twitter or Instagram at charcoalblue. Tatiana, thank you so much for, for joining us. For the people who haven't seen it, can you describe what 17 Border Crossings is? Sure. It's a travel log um, that goes through many countries, many borders that my husband visited in real life. And he would tell all these anecdotes, you know, in living rooms to our friends. And everybody was like, no way, dude, really? <laughs> like when he arrived in Colombia, it was right after September 11, for mm-hmm. example. And they were 
you know, it, it was the whole terrorism thing and stuff. And the Colombians, I guess, pressured by the American government, were desperately trying to find terrorists. So he came back from Morocco into Colombia, and he had these Moroccan babushas on, and they were like, you're Taliban. You're a Taliban. And they actually placed a bag of cocaine in his bag to have him there and incriminate him and see what they could get out of him. And he just had like a long Levi's coat that looked Arab with these babushas. And then the way to get out of this was uh, he didn't know what to say. He was visiting me in Colombia. We were, uh, you know, girlfriend, boyfriend at that point, not married, I'm married to him. <laughs> Um, and the only thing he could think of was saying, you know, I'm, I'm the boyfriend of, of, of the niece of a very famous soap opera star, Victor Mayarino. So he, he yeah. named this guy. <laughs> and it's in the play. That is a star. In the play, yeah. <laughs> and the Colombian guys were like, oh, girl, you should have told us before, Victor Mayarino. Let's get an autograph, you know. <laughs> so every border crossing, and I have to say that sadly and funnily, a little bit of a picture of how our, our crazy Colombian culture is. So ev every border crossing is, is a little bit of an x-ray of, of mm -hmm. the culture. And with time, we've been including, obviously, you know, this important and problematic border crossings where, um, depending on what passport you have, you can get sent to your death, or depending on where you were born, um, you can you have access to certain things or not, and, and, and uh, the conflicts in borders and uh, the, the, the problem with immigration, which is, you know, I, I truly believe that nobody leaves their home unless they absolutely have to. Do you have an American passport? I don't. I have yes. a green card. Okay. Well, but like, because Jose and I are both immigrants, and I didn't get an American passport until I was, until 2000 when I became a citizen. And, okay. and I've noticed as a person who has an American passport, like it basically allows you to go anywhere in the world. And you touch on that privilege in this play. And so like, what have you noticed in your own experience, like before getting a green card versus after getting a green card? Well, it's very different. It, having a Colombian passport is pretty terrible to the point that some people come here and, and make an investment so that their children are born here. Mm -hmm. I have a huge advantage, and it's that my grandmother was Spanish, and she left during the Franco's regime. Uh, she was uh, persecuted, her family was, and so there's a, a historical, uh, it's called the, the Law of Historical Memory or something, that allows for the children and grandchildren of those people that were forced out of Spain to have passports, oh. Spanish passports. So I have a Spanish passport. Oh. So I would say that's even better than the American because it's like European Union, there, there is some, um, even though the United States passport doesn't need a visa to go anywhere, or almost anywhere, Brazil, yes, because they're doing the recipro reciprocal law or something, whatever mm -hmm. you do to them, they decided mm -hmm. they're gonna mm -hmm. do. So, uh, even though that happens, there's some hatred towards the United States because of their, you know, international politics and their, you know, you know, like the king of resources and stuff. Mm -hmm. So, sometimes the Americans don't have the best reputation. So with the Spanish passport, not only do you not need a visa, but you're welcomed mm -hmm. <laughs> emotionally <laughs> anywhere. You have so been, that's good. Yeah, you haven't. So that's good. plus my mother's Panamanian. Yeah. yeah. So can, can I say I, you know, I don't know how many nationalities you're allowed, but I mm -hmm. could have this, the Panamanian passport, and that's also like a weird Latin American Switzerland or something. Nobody cares about it. <laughs> uh, so I'm personally set, you know, but I couldn't, mm -hmm. I, I know what it is to be just Colombian because for a while I was just Colombian with my passport. I would love to hear about the process of you say, uh, your husband was telling his stories like maybe at parties in your mm -hmm, living room. Mm -hmm. And then what was the process of taking that then to the page and then to bring it to the stage, but still maintain that we're in your living room listening to stories. Exactly. Quality. It has a very anecdotal feeling. 
Um, and, and if you could put it in a category, it's almost like stand-up comedy. So sometimes mm -hmm. some people come here feeling, you know, we're going to watch the show. We're bored here. And we do have that because you obviously shouldn't and can't not touch upon that. But he's he's charming and it's funny and, and lately he's like in a more elegant suit and he's lost some weight so <laughs> I'm like it's a little too flashy man you know so <laughs> and some people have commented on on that plus he's a white male so mm -hmm. you know so some people I think want this to be more serious and it is and and there's very special moments so let's make a one man show that you can leave home with and it can travel easily with an easy set. And you can come back with some money, you know, for the family. And you're just being you to some extent, mm -hmm. because he is anyway. And he's, he's, uh, he came up with a very cool, this is how it all starts coming together, um, set piece, which is a light bar. And at first we were performing this in very small spaces with no theater lights. And the light bar holds most of the lights for the show, actually. Mm -hmm. So... There's a scene with a plane, so there's two little LED lights on the edges that turn on and off for the plane. Then he goes, ding, and a little tiny IKEA light comes on. So these are like practicals. The, the whole thing has neons, mm -hmm. which is really good for the interrogation rooms, which he is in often, because they, they just don't know where to place him. Hmm. You know, there's the, here's this American that has a thousand stamps in his passport from Morocco, from uh, Arab countries, Croatia, because his ex-girlfriend was uh, Bosnian, so he knows Bosnian, Russian, Czech, because he studied in Czech Republic theater. Uh, so he's a weird American. <laughs> so they don't really know what to do with him, so he spends a lot of his time in these interrogation rooms. Uh, so those neons help with that and and all of these trips you know are not jet set trips he he's gotten them through grants to create shows because he's interested in other cultures and he he truly is respectful about other cultures we we did a show about a colombian doorman that he played and a lot of people were like how dare you play a colombian doorman in spanish mm -hmm. well the doorman is the person that talks the least in a building he just says at your service mm -hmm. which he could do and my family, who are soap opera stars, were all on video, through a video intercom. They would communicate with him, them, him. And a whole story developed out of this that turned into soap opera because he was fascinated by the soap opera culture. So he truly sees no borders. And, and uh, this show then, yeah, just with the light bar, uh, then as it has been in other theaters, we have started adding lights more sound, and here at the workshop, I think it's looking great because it's like we used the brick walls. So you travel everywhere. You travel many places, and you really feel in those places with very little elements, set elements. And I feel that the sound designer or light designer are amazing because they've been able to, with, you know, without um, losing the aesthetic of the show, which is minimalistic, to create these huge, beautiful landscapes, and, and the lighting looks amazing. You know, it's just like, wow, we are in the sea in Croatia. That's crazy. And how are you trained as a director in order to... <laughs> I'm trained in that, you know, I've been working with buddies for the past 15 years. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I studied theater in Colombia. Um, and I guess... That just taught me to, it's, it's more naturalistic, the way they do theater there. Mm -hmm. Like you sit in a couch and talk and talk and talk and talk. And I was missing something there. Uh, but you also learn how to solve problems with very little. Um, and then when I met Thaddeus, and he also worked with Robert Lepage, the Canadian mm -hmm. director, yeah. for a while and started seeing Lepage's things and everything, this whole world opened up to me. Well, Lepage does very... Yeah. He has, he has a lot. He has a lot, but it's a very theatrical language. Like, mm -hmm. you feel you're in a movie, but mm -hmm. really, it's amazing theatrical conventions. You mm -hmm. know, like, I remember um, he a scene from Far Side of the Moon, one of his plays, where he's doing his laundry, and he's like a... a, a 
kind of failed uh, astronomer, scientist, and he's just depressed doing his laundry and he doesn't <laughs> have any money. And you know, and what he does is he goes inside the washer, like physically, but you know it's with his mind. And then when he gets in, the whole s- s- uh, set turns into space. But I'm talking lights out, black and lights. You know, so so that transformative nature where you can be in a character's mind without a bunch of things, without, um, it, and it's it's very physical, yeah, but mm-hmm. it's also very minimal. So I, I learned that, and, and that is studied in Prague, where I think it's amazing how they do things, and it's that on the first day of rehearsal, they get the set. Instead of getting a script... Mm. that you go over a thousand times. You get the set. <laughs> you have the idea of what you want to do, what you want to talk about, but you get the set as a toy. Mm. And you play with that set, and you improvise with that set and the actor, and you have fun. You play, mm-hmm. which is what a play is, mm-hmm. with the context of what you want to say. And uh, the text starts developing from the improvisations that you do with this toy set thing. Mm-hmm. So Thaddeus is used to this and how it, it's ended up being. Nowadays, we also start with a script. Not before, it was just like, wouldn't it be cool if this suitcase opened and sand came out? And it, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, and. <laughs> so that's where I come in a lot of the times. We, we both create the pieces. Um but uh, definitely the set is totally integrated into the script and the lights are and the sound is. So all these are elements and it's not about only the acting and the actor. You know, it's how this all comes together to create a picture for the audience that they're, they're with you. The mm. main thing is communicating and, and, you know, that you can travel with us is the, the idea. Considering you've done theater all over the world and you've seen different, you know, cultures and you've seen different audience cultures and different theater cultures, mm-hmm. what would you import to America in terms of what's going on outside the U.S. and you would love to see that in theaters here and also in audiences here? Okay. It depends a lot on the state. The states is such a big place that every state is very different, I feel, which is part of the reason why people don't have passports and not interested in traveling so much, I mm-hmm. think, because the states is really big. That mm-hmm. and, a, and a lack of, you know, knowledge about the world sometimes. But, <laughs> but uh, so it's very different. Like, for example, mm-hmm. we perform in Denver a lot because his mm-hmm. father lives in Denver. And audiences there are just, they're just there. They're just, they're, they're they don't have so much baggage mm. so they just enjoy they just laugh mm-hmm. there there's nothing written on a book as to how you should be reacting to this or how and that's the same for philly a little less so mm. but the same uh and everywhere in the world you know australia uh hong kong people are just there and they're having fun and they think he's charming and there's and I feel in New York, for example, and, and maybe more the East Coast, because you 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 guys are always ahead of time, I feel. And and it's always progressive, right? <laughs> yes. So um, there's issues that where New York gets there first than anybody else, like, uh, I don't know, racism, um, gay issues. Uh, now I've noticed the gender you know, so to me, what happens is that because you're pioneers and not, nobody has talked about this before, you have to go a little too far in one direction. So you start caring too much. How can I say this? Like about being PC, about being. So then, in a way, the reverse problem happens where you just have to arrive at a balance. So to some extent, we have felt that because Thaddeus is a white male, that immediately means a bunch of things. When he's Mm -hmm. also just a person on stage that is 
very respectful of other cultures, that has a very big heart, that is interested in the world, knows 10 languages, but if you only see him through that scope, then there's a bunch of, he shouldn't even be on a stage talking. You know what I mean? So you, it kind of becomes this discriminating on the other end. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And 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 it it's like the same as you know, if you have a play, it has to have uh, I don't know, five Asian people, three black people. Three, what about people? You know, so so sometimes I th- I feel we have to acknowledge our differences and 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 be able to assert them, but also what connects us is what makes us the same, and ultimately, we are on the same boat is what this play is saying. Mm-hmm. So not so much about the differences which exist and should be respected, but there are also things that bring us together. Uh, you know, uh, a white male with the privilege of an American passport should be able to talk about what it is to travel around the world. And also when this show is, it, he doesn't even put himself as the traveler. You are traveling. He always talks in the third person because he actually hates be making monologues about himself and his mm-hmm. experiences, even though it's his experiences, but he just wants to tell them to you, mm-hmm. you know. And we also remember and touch upon all those things, but you also laugh and you also, because there is an absurdity to all this, you know, and to the lines we have created. So, Jose, how many shows did you see in your capacity as a Drama Desk nominator? I don't even remember. I haven't counted them because since the theater season is so weird and it goes from May one year to April the next year, I would have to go back and look at my spreadsheet and count the shows from like whatever. And I don't know how to count, so I haven't done it. But I know that as a group of nominators, we considered... 280 shows and I'm sure I saw at least 250 of those dang how do you even remember all of those shows to consider because I feel like a big criticisms of um, these award shows is like most of the nominators usually just remember nominate the ones that played later in the season that's very true but I'm uh, well I don't know how into how much of the specifics I can get of how we do our nominations. But if you take a look at the pool of nominees we ended up with, did you notice that we nominated Alison Wright, who was Amelia in Othello from Shakespeare in the Park last summer? She's mm-hmm. one of our nominees. So I think that we ended up with a pretty wonderful array of nominees that represented every month at least in the theater year. So I'm very happy with that. For anyone who doesn't know, the Drama Desk Awards recognizes Broadway and Off-Broadway. And Off-Off-Broadway. Which is insane. It is insane. Like, aren't there certain things that... Because I, I know, for example, like you could get into the the Lincoln Center theater three shows. Like, there's their small black box shows. And so is there like a rationale for why certain productions are... How do you become, like, Drama Desk, uh, you know, valid? Well, in the case of the smaller theaters, for instance, LCT3 removed themselves from consideration. Oh. So Mary Seacole was not eligible for us because they just didn't want to be part of the of the uh, year that way. Interesting. The same happened on Broadway with the boys in the band, which infamously only invited Tony voters. They didn't invite any other of the critics groups. And congratulations, and they ended up with nominations for Best Revival and Best Featured Actor in a Play. So good for them. They knew what they were doing. But we, as you know, as Drama Desk nominators, we travel everywhere. Like, we went see shows in basements in Brooklyn. We saw the Broadway shows also, but we go to the boroughs. Like, we go mm-hmm. wherever the shows are happening. And uh, the people who choose not to submit themselves are you know it's up to them right we can't force them to the only thing that a show needs 
in order to meet the criteria and be eligible for our awards is to run for at least 21 performances. If you run 21 and on, that's it. You're eligible and we're going to go see you. Yeah. I know a lot of people were upset that Hadestown didn't get a Best Musical nomination, even though it did get seven other nominations. So can you explain the rationale for why? Because it might be fascinating for people who don't know off-Broadway theater history. Yes. Since the Drama Desk considers shows off-Broadway as well as Broadway shows, Hadestown was actually nominated for Best Musical in 2017, where it competed against The Band's Visit and Come From Away. So it's so weird. I wasn't a nominator back then, but it's so weird to see how shows that run off-Broadway first end up nominated for Drama Desk Awards. And then when they move to Broadway, they're not eligible anymore. In the case of Hadestown, for instance, we only considered the elements that were new to the Broadway production. And Andre the Shields was one, for instance. Unfortunately, as much as I would love to give Amber Gray every single award in the world, you know, best lighting design, best costumes, <laughs> best musical, she had been considered by a different nominating committee in 2017, and she was not nominated. So this year, she uh, and Patrick Page, for instance, were not eligible. So if you're mad about those two things, go after the people who were on the nominating committee two years ago. Yeah, and what I would say is, like, if you look at the history of Drama Desk nominees for Best Play and for Best Musical, in a way, I feel, and this is not just because I'm part of the group now, but I feel that you can see the way that they're always, you know, like, on the pulse of what's going on. Because can you imagine... Come From Away, The Band's Visit, mm-hmm. and Hadestown competing for Best Musical. That's like mind-blowing. And it was like two years before they came to Broadway. Well, it's not mind-blowing because it's kind of like the Pulitzers where you can recognize anything that's playing, basically. And the thing is, most of the great works that's playing isn't playing on Broadway. Mm-hmm. And most of the works like featuring women and people of color are actually playing in smaller houses. So I feel like the nomin- the Drama Desk nominees are just a lot more diverse stylistically and across gender and racial lines because like, you have a more diverse pool to choose from. Do you ever feel like the Tony Awards just gets too much attention? Well, I mean, if you look at it from like an industry point of view, the Tony Awards are the Oscars and the Emmys and the Grammys and their, their awards give to industry people by industry people, while the Drama Desk Awards are given by critics and journalists. And as we both know, we don't get attention anyway. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I mean, I guess it's just repeating a cycle that we're already very familiar with. But just remember that, you know, if you think about critics groups, ideally, they are not you know, we're not voting for our friends. Like, we don't have economic interests in any of the shows running Mm -hmm. forever or closing or not running. We are not friends with the people, which is not something that you can say about the Oscars, where you have, like, people like Julia Roberts throwing parties so that, you know, her favorite, uh, her friends, you know, like, I remember, like, years ago, Michelle Pfeiffer and Nicole Kidman and all these other uh, Hollywood actresses were throwing parties so that George Clooney would win an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. And guess what? He won. So we don't have that. That's why they call it campaigning. Yeah. And we don't have that. We don't have to campaign for anyone. We are just trying to highlight what we thought was the most important work in any given season. And so just pivoting a little bit, how do you feel about the Tony nominations? Do you think they were accurately representing the best and worst of the Broadway season? Considering how bad the Broadway season was, I guess. I mean, with best play, it was like, I felt it was just like, we have to nominate five. So let's nominate five. If you get, you know, a choice between, I can't even think of a food that I don't like. But if you got a choice between like, I don't know, like a protein shake, like an unflavored protein shake and like a liver sandwich with like kale and no dressing, and those were your two options, you would have to pick one. And I feel that other than works like 
what the Constitution means to me, which is just incredible. The offering and, and also got nominated for a Drama Desk Award for Best Play. Yes, and an Outer Critics Circle Award and all of the everything. So other than a show like that, the Broadway selection was just so poor. Mm-hmm. And I think I feel like it, it. It's been pretty poor for the past couple of years. Yeah. And I feel like every year, just as someone who's been following this industry for you know, going to be it's going to be nine years. Yeah, it's nine years. I've been following this. I've been following the industry in New York for nine years, and I feel, and just anecdotally for me, I feel like every year the Broadway selection just gets more and more uninspiring. But the off-Broadway selection is just like exploding up to a point where you have publications like GQ calling Jeremy O'Harris a Broadway playwright when he's never been on Broadway, but he's like the talk of the town. Based on two off-Broadway plays, or you have like everyone talking about Oklahoma, but not because it was playing on Broadway. It was because it was playing somewhere in Brooklyn. And I feel like if we're going to be talking about like the pulse of what theater is, it's less about what's happening in this in like on Forty Second Street in Manhattan than it is about just theater being everywhere in the city and every permutation of it is exciting and it doesn't have to be gigantic to be exciting yeah it's like analogous to hollywood where Mm -hmm. all the all the attention goes to like all the marvel movies and all like the blockbusters when the best work is being done by the independent scene and if you see this year's tony nominations all the best work and best play what the constitution means to me and choir boy they both came from off broadway uh, the revival of Oklahoma came from off Broadway. Hades Town. Yes, like all the work that's really important and multicultural and exciting Good. came from off Broadway. So producers transfer more shows. Yeah. Or I'm going to be writing an essay about this or expand what is a Broadway house. Do you really have to though? Like, do you really? I don't. I don't. Or think- like televise, or maybe televise a drama desk, because I feel like most people love the Tonys is because they're on television. Yeah, and they have all the stars, and they have. Yeah. like but we're even seeing like major stars doing off Broadway stuff. Exactly. Like Jake Gyllenhaal just did that uh, show at the Public, and the Public Theater always has those like stars. Killian mm-hmm. Murphy right now is doing a show at St. Anne's Warehouse. And, um, Jillian Anderson did a show at St. Anne's Warehouse. Yes. And yeah, I mean, I, I think those boundaries for the artists are not are non-existent anymore. It's just mm-hmm. like the producers and the people who put in the money that are still like yeah. very... But like my dream scenario would be like kind of like the Golden Globes. They also televise those if we televise the drama desk. Because you all have a shouldn't... Because you all have an award ceremony. You have a host and everything. Who's hosting this year? Michael Yuri. Yeah, Michael Yuri's hosting this year. It's going to be hilarious. And you have musical performances too. Then just televise that. Put it on CBS. And people around the country can then know this... There's exciting theater happening in Brooklyn. Yes. But I, but but that's also you know since it's off Broadway, uh, yeah, there's no interest for people to televise it. I do think mm-hmm. that the Drama Desk Awards get uh, streamed. They do get streamed. Yeah, so people can check it out over there. Mm-hmm. But I still think it should be on television. Well, yeah, but I mean, even the Tonys are having a hard time being on television. So. Yeah, yeah, because audiences yeah. and things like that. Yeah. Audiences are dumb. It's more like if it's on television, more people will know about it, unfortunately, because audiences are dumb. Yes, they are. <laughs> Not every audience. Off Broadway audiences are very smart. Yes, or and it, or our audience of listeners, you all, you all, you all are also very smart. Yes. Okay, uh, that's our discussion. Let us know what your thoughts are on this season of plays and what you wish had been nominated or what your surprise did get nominated. <clears throat> Beetlejuice. Uh, do you have any closing thoughts? No, just keep going to the theater. Mm-hmm. And watch awards because, I mean, even if we don't agree with the nominees, like it's important to have the Tonys on TV, I think. I think so. And I hope this year they figure out how to present the plays. Oh, God, I know, right? Oh, and also, you know, like a little plug, Drama Desk Award tickets are on sale now. So Ooh. go buy them and you can go mingle with the stars. Oh, who's going to be there? When is it? 
Give us all the details. It's June second, and most of the nominees show up. So you know, like Helen Mirren has shown up. Like all the Broadway people show up. Like they're they're like the Golden Globes.、Mm-hmm. And you've already bought your suit. It's going to be velvet. Yes, it's a pink velvet tux. Oh, I'm I am so excited for the photos. I need to lose like ten pounds first. <laughs> it's just like a wedding. <laughs> Okay, thank you so much, Jose, for all the work you've done, and thank you all for listening to this episode. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and wherever you get podcasts, and you can watch the video of our interview with Tatiana Malarino on YouTube. And if you have suggestions for th- shows that we should see, people we should interview, or things you want us to rant about. Let us know. Leave a comment. Leave reviews. Actually, leave reviews and ratings. It helps people find us, and it gives our publishers a reason to give us more money. <laughs> and remember, theater is more fun when you take a friend. Bye. Have fun.